Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 6, Opposites Attract, Part 2, The Anglo-French Cordial. In 1858, recently elected Republican Senator Abraham Lincoln, borrowing a phrase from the great philosopher George Costanza, sent out a warning that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Although Lincoln was speaking nearly 40 years earlier in a nation which would soon find itself consumed by civil war, Lincoln could very well have been speaking to an assembly of French politicians at the dawn of the 20th century. Because, just like the British as we saw last week, France was also facing its own diplomatic crisis by 1900. They had only one ally in Russia, but there was always a concern whether or not the Tsar could be dependable especially since Russia seemed more interested in poking the British in the eye over the Far East than anything else. French relations with the Austro-Hungarians and Italians were never all that positive, and diplomacy with Germany, although not as entirely negative as you might think, was inconsistent and more spontaneous at best, mostly due to the carousel of different ministers which had served the French Foreign Office since 1870. But it was France's relationship with Great Britain which really could not have gotten any worse. Of course, this was not a new development, even by early 20th century standards. The largest chapters of European history textbooks are dedicated to the centuries-old rivalry between the two powers. Images of British and French forces mustering at Hastings, Agincourt, and Waterloo have firmly been etched into the minds of students of Western history, and it looked that up until the early years of the 20th century, the conflict between the two could ignite yet again. By the late 1890s, France was firmly divided at about every social and political level you can imagine. The church was against the state, the public were against the military, the military was against the state, and the state was against the public, and the broken record continued. The shadow of the 1789 revolution continued to hang over every aspect of French life, where the battle between advocates of traditional conservatism went up against progressive liberalism, each who had their own competing visions of the future. Even by 1897, it looked as though France would continue to be pulled in opposite directions. However, events which would unfold along the banks of the African Nile River would soon pit the French and English in a tense dispute, but instead of war, would result in a soothing of centuries-old animosities. At the center of the dispute was a small mud fort in the outback of South Sudan, known to the French and English as Fashoda. We mentioned Fashoda briefly last week, as it pertained to the formation of the Anglo-Japanese alliance, but I wanted to explore it in a little bit more detail today, as it is a pretty important event in pre-war Europe. But what brought the English and French to their eventual showdown at Fashoda started way back in 1882, with the British occupation of Egypt. Now, France had always felt that they had exclusive rights to Egypt, which Napoleon had invaded in 1798, but more recently, The center of European imperial desire was focused on the recently constructed Suez Canal, which had been completed in November of 1869. The Suez Canal had an immediate impact on world trade, as it now allowed vessels to navigate from the Indian Ocean straight into the Mediterranean, without having to detour all the way around the southern tip of Africa. As a result, shipping times had decreased exponentially, and soon the majority of all imperial trade would pass through the canal at some point or another. As more goods made their way through the canal, it became one of the most important trading hubs in the world, and in order to guarantee safe passage, 
the Spanish, English, and French, had agreed that the Egyptian government should hold authority over the canal, not only to avoid any accusations of misconduct on their behalf, but to allow a seemingly neutral fourth party to run the day-to-day -day operations. But when internal dissension had forced the Egyptian government to sell its share of power to Great Britain, it pretty much left the English in charge of the canal, and this did not sit well with the French or Spanish one little bit. The British, already facing an uncertain political situation in Egypt, moved in and occupied the country in 1882. And if the English running the canal did not sit well with the French in the first place, then you can guarantee that this did not either. When news of the occupation arrived at the Quai d'Orsay, the French foreign ministry, public opinion became increasingly anti-English, and the French government, claiming they had been slighted by British greed, began to look into ways of re-establishing French influence along the Suez. Now, French interests in Africa go back a long time, and with the post-1870 re-emergence, France had gone back to re-establishing their holdings along the north and northwestern part of the continent. By 1882, France had the majority of Africa in their imperial grasp. Looking at a map of their empire by 1900, it looks just like a giant blob reaching from Algeria down to Côte d'Ivoire and as far inland as the Central African Republic. Egypt, however, remained outside their grasp, and remained a source of much irritation among the imperialist faction within the foreign ministry. France's fortune began to turn in 1885, when the British sent a military detachment to the South Sudan in order to help oversee the evacuation of Egyptian troops, which had been sent to quell a Muslim rebellion which was feared would eventually spill over into Egypt. At the head of the detachment was Major General Charles Gordon, who had served during the Opium Wars and had recently been the Governor General for the Sudan region. After securing the evacuation of the Egyptian troops, Gordon moved his forces into the now capital city of Khartoum, but soon found himself surrounded by Muslim rebels who promptly laid siege to the city. The details of the siege are a bit sketchy, and no one really knows how Gordon found himself surrounded so quickly. Whether the rebels simply caught up to him and forced him into a final stand, or he thought he could hold out for reinforcements, remains debatable. But regardless, Gordon was captured and executed soon after the rebels broke into the city. For his supposed heroics, Gordon became a martyr for British imperialism. But more importantly, was that in the wake of his death, the British would not occupy South Sudan for another decade, and the region remained pretty much up for the taking. So the French took their chance in the summer of 1896, and sent an expedition of their own, under the command of General Jean-Baptiste Marchand, with orders to occupy the fort at Fashoda. The British, catching wind of these movements, sent a force of their own, commanded by Sir Herbert Kitchener, later to be Lord Kitchener, the man whose face would be plastered on every recruiting poster in the Empire during the First World War. In July of 1898, after two years of harsh traversing, Marchand's forces occupied Fashoda. But before they could congratulate themselves on a tough job well done, the English force under Kitchener arrived, and soon the standoff was on. The two commanders, both professional military men of their respective nations, developed an amicable relationship. Neither wanted a fight, but both understood that it was ultimately not their decision, and so the two officers ordered their troops to dig in. In Paris and London, the standoff at Fashoda was seen as the fulcrum for the control of Africa, which had been a fierce competition since the 1880s. As the standoff at Fashoda continued, tensions at home began to mount. 
The British argued that the French had imposed on their spheres of influence, while the French counterclaimed that South Sudan was free for the taking, much in the same vein that Egypt had been in 1882. So there was a little bit of payback for that. War plans were apparently drawn up, and at Fashoda, Kitchener and Marchant awaited orders. But all the saber-rattling would be for naught, because in November of 1898, in a brilliant stroke of political and humanitarian genius, the governments of both powers agreed that having good, white European troops killed over black African soil would be a criminal waste, and thus a compromise was met. Literally, like I'm not making that last part up. That's pretty much how it went down. But the key thing is that Great Britain and France, arch-rivals for centuries, had avoided war. Although they had escaped conflict, both nations had walked away feeling a little bit shell-shocked. Afterwards, Joseph Chamberlain would reopen military talks with Germany, while the French, happy that violence had been averted, remained as divided as ever before. But while the standoff at Fashoda was still ongoing, the French public were becoming increasingly absorbed in a legal case which was slowly overtaking the entire nation. In November of 1894, four years before Fashoda, an army captain by the name Alfred Dreyfus was arrested and brought up on charges that he had been selling military secrets to the Germans. Stripped of rank in military dress, Dreyfus was publicly degraded before the angry French people, whom many still harbored a bitter resentment for the Germans following the disastrous Franco-Prussian War of 1870. After a brief monkey trial, Dreyfus was sent off to the lovely named penal colony of Hell's Island, where he spent the next five years in solitary confinement, and many hoped that the case would end there. But in 1896, new evidence surfaced that Dreyfus had been wrongly accused and potentially framed by the French military. The now infamous Dreyfus affair came to dominate every aspect of French life. From the heads of state to the baker on the streets, it caused a rift in France's everyday culture. Rumors that Dreyfus had been targeted by his military superiors due to his Jewish background became widespread, and in January 1898, an article written by a famous contemporary social critic personally accused the French president, along with several senior military staff, of obstruction of justice and anti-Semitism towards Dreyfus. Dreyfus would finally clear his name in 1906, but the affair had already caused such a rift in French society that many suspect the Third Republic would be unable to survive in the face of so much protest and public anger. Watching all these developments with great alarm was the French Foreign Affairs Minister, and I will probably horribly mispronounce this, Théophile Delcasset. Delcasset, like many other politicians at this time, made the jump from journalism to public service. Born in 1852, as a youth he had seen firsthand the chaos which followed French defeat in 1870, and like many of his colleagues, harbored a bitter resentment for anything German. But while many of his colleagues blamed Germany or England for France's troubles, Delcasset had identified that the biggest threat to French security was actually the French. He was a dedicated imperialist who dreamed of a vast French empire covering the Mediterranean to the shores of Africa, but had identified that it was the deep political and social rifts which held his dream back from becoming a reality. Delcasset had seen French society at its worst. Seeing it eager to fight the English in a war over Fashoda, while seeing it nearly tear itself apart during the Dreyfus Affair, had given him no doubt that these divisions represented a far larger threat than any foreign power, and made it a priority to see France establish itself again among the great imperial states of the world. To accomplish this, the foreign minister was a firm believer in, 
again, sorry with the pronunciation, rapprochement, a French political philosophy first coined in 1809, which called for the cordial relationships between formerly hostile powers. For Delcasset, the hostile power he had in mind was Great Britain. But how would he do this? Well, there are two pieces of evidence which gave him hope. The first was Fashoda, and any time you can avoid shooting each other in the face usually bodes well for the future. And the second was the Anglo-Japanese alliance signed in 1902, which signified to the world that Britain was no longer pursuing their isolation policies. It would be a long shot for sure, but as we will see, not impossible. He got his chance when in late 1902, English and German relations hit a sour point. Even after the treaty with the Japanese, Britain continued to flirt with the idea of an alliance with Germany, but by early 1903, that idea was put to bed permanently. And I mean, permanently. The incident which sparked the breakdown occurred when Wilhelm, along with the Italians, convinced the British that the three countries should launch a joint naval expedition to Venezuela, who came to owe some money due to property damage sustained during the Venezuelan Civil War. The problem was that the Americans, as part of the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, did not take too kindly to three European navies sailing so close to their own backyard. President Teddy Roosevelt threatened war against Germany, claiming that the violation of the Monroe Doctrine represented a breach of American security, but also because he feared Germany would be looking to establish permanent military bases in the Caribbean. The Kaiser, unwilling to back down to the President's demand, refused to obey. In response, Roosevelt ordered a naval detachment to the Venezuelan coast, and again, like Fashoda, there was another tense standoff. Eventually, cooler heads prevailed and the situation was resolved through arbitration, but the British never forgave Wilhelm, who they felt had almost single-handedly brought Britain into a war with the United States. The British public began to see the Kaiser as dubious and untrustworthy, and with public support no longer behind an Anglo-German alliance, Delcasse used the opening to begin preliminary talks with the English. In early 1903, the foreign minister telegraphed the French ambassador in London, Paul Cambon, to begin talks with British Foreign Secretary Lord Lansdowne, whom we met near the end of last week. Although the early conversations between Lansdowne and Cambon generated only limited progress, the two men shared common concern over a situation which had been brewing in Morocco. Morocco was one of the few countries in Africa which, up to this point, had remained independent while so many others had fallen under foreign occupation. Its location made it highly desirable for France and Great Britain, but also Spain, Italy, and Germany, because whoever controlled Morocco effectively controlled the Straits of Gibraltar, the key waterway which connects the Mediterranean to the Atlantic Ocean. But in 1903, the Moroccan government was facing eternal dissension at every turn and it looked that it could be overthrown at any moment. Cambon and Lansdowne feared that a revolution toppling the Moroccan government would result in a power vacuum, with the Spanish, Germans, and Italians also in the mix, it will mean a scramble for control over its resources, and as they learned at Fashoda, could end up leading to a war. When the talks ended just after a month in February of 1903, Cambon and Lansdowne, along with the help of Spanish banks, agreed to send joint loans to the ailing Moroccan government in an effort to help delay its collapse. While these early talks did not produce the results Del Casse would have wanted, it did signal that despite centuries of animosity, 
the French and English were capable of reaching a diplomatic agreement, and Delcasse was eager to continue to build on this newly formed foundation. And in 1903, he would gain extra support for his cause, when King Edward VII of Great Britain made an official state visit to Paris. King Edward VII was the eldest son of Queen Victoria, who came to the throne following the Queen's death on January 22, 1901. Edward was both fluent in German and French, and had a passion for foreign affairs, and as a result, his visit to Paris marked the first time in, well, centuries, that an English monarch had visited France during peacetime. During his visit to Paris in the early spring, Edward impressed the French crowds by providing endless compliments on French theater, art, food, and culture. He reportedly saluted every French flag and military officer that he and his entourage bypassed, and even had a little bit of a fanboy moment upon meeting a famous French theater actress. But Edward's behavior was not a simple, I'll be polite because I'm in your house kind of deal. Edward's words were appealing to French nationalism and honor. And in a time when social schisms threatened to topple the Third Republic, there is a very strong message of unity to the king's words. Edward's visit, to the disappointment of some, I'm sure, went off without a hitch, and soon the publics of both nations would be calling for an improvement of diplomatic relations. Delcasse then reopened talks with Lansdowne in May of 1903, and the talks, yet again, focused on their mutual concerns stemming from respective overseas imperial ambitions. But this time, these talks were not simply going to be about testing the waters to see how hot or cold they might be, but they were going to dive in head first, and hopefully, the pool would be deep enough to tread some water. The negotiations again were handled by Campbell and Lansdowne at the Foreign Ministry in London, and both men agreed that outstanding colonial issues had to be dealt with as swiftly as possible. The two men had their hands full, as you can imagine, trying to find agreeable terms on colonial disputes which went back centuries would require more than a single pot of coffee to get you through the day. The talks would continue from May 1903 until February of 1904, and covered a whole host of issues from fishing rights off Newfoundland to key discussions surrounding the events in Morocco, which continued to be more pressing by the day. But the big break came when the two men came to an agreement over their imperial ambitions in Africa. The final document, which would form the backbone of the Anglo-French Cordial, was primarily a binding agreement over the two most sought-after holdings, Egypt and Morocco. Great Britain received full rights in Egypt, and the hotly contested Suez Canal would remain under British administration. However, free passage would be guaranteed to both French and English vessels. In addition, any treaties the French had made with the Egyptians prior to the British occupation in 1882 would be upheld by both parties. Morocco fell to the French, who arranged for the country to become a protectorate by guaranteeing that France would not interfere with the already tense political situation, but in the event of a collapse, French intervention would solely be a French prerogative. But what wrapped it all up in a bow was a final agreement that in order for these clauses to be successful, each side would have to offer diplomatic support for the other in the event of a third party interfering with the proceedings. Keep this final point in mind, as it will come to play an important role in 1905, when Wilhelm would test this newfound bond by issuing a challenge to the French over Morocco, which we will get to in a couple episodes from now. The Anglo-French Cordial 
was finally signed on April 8, 1904, signaling the end of a centuries-old debate between French and English imperialism. Lansdowne and Cambon shook hands, and took the agreement to their respective assemblies, and both were passed with only minimal opposition. The Anglo-French cordial may have represented a big step in the rapprochement Sapa del Casse, but it also represents a bit of a contradiction, now doesn't it? Remember, France was still in a military alliance with Russia at this time, so why would the English, who, as we saw last week, were so fanatically anti-Russian, agree to go along with all this? Certainly, this begs a little bit more unpacking, as it is a very interesting question. First off, it is important to note that the Anglo-French Cordial was not a military agreement. It was strictly concerned with figuring out colonial grievances between the two countries. No pledges of armed support were made, so unlike the alliances we have discussed thus far, it did not have any muscle behind it. The terms of the Cordial would later be expanded on, but as of 1904, they remained strictly colonial. Secondly, it allowed France and Great Britain to gain an economic advantage on Germany which by this point was increasingly being seen as the common enemy. With the Suez Canal firmly under British control, and the French more or less having full influence in Morocco, and thus the Straits of Gibraltar as well, German shipping could be dealt a major blow in the event of increasing hostilities. Delcasse, already passionately anti-German, no doubt liked that idea, but he had also taken notice that since the failed talks between Britain and Germany, England still had no formal allies on the continent. The English agreement with the Japanese came about concerns of Russian encroachment in the Far East, but what Delcasse feared most was that due to France's relationship with Russia, France could find itself dragged into a war with Britain if the Japanese or Russians were to declare war on each other. You've probably already guessed it, but that leads into the third point. On the morning of February the 9th, 1904, before the Cordial was formally passed into law, Lansdowne received a troubling piece of news from the Far East. And you know what's coming. The Japanese Navy had launched a preemptive strike against the Russian garrison at Port Arthur and caught its defenders completely off guard. Several days later, Japan and Russia, two rival nations in the Far East, had declared war. Lansdowne and Cambon now found themselves in an awkward position as both their respective alliances could force each other into the conflict despite the fact that neither had any real interest in fighting. So if they needed further encouragement to reach a deal, that was it. Although war between the Russians and Japanese had not come about until the later stages of the negotiations, both Lansdowne and Cambon had become acutely aware of the growing tensions between the two eastern rivals, which made the settling of colonial questions now more pressing than ever. Although the British did not think it at the time, the Anglo-French Cordial helped reset the balance of power on the continent. The English now had an ally which would help them keep close tabs on Germany, which in the wake of its naval construction program was becoming increasingly more hostile. The French as well had an ally which would stand by them in the event of a crisis. In 1905 and 1911, this pledge of diplomatic support would be tested, as Wilhelm, distraught from hearing the news of the Cordial, went out to see just how strong it really was. The Cordial's test of strength would lay the foundation for further talks, as the English would soon end their rivalry with Russia, and the infamous pre-war alliances of the Triple Entente and the Triple Alliance will finally take form. 
Next week, though, we will look into the conflict between the Japanese and the Russians, as it helps set the stage for Tsar Nicholas II to begin seeing the British as a potential ally. I will spoil it for you now, Russia loses, big time. But the significance of its defeat is that Russian prestige took a major hit, and it would spend the rest of the decade trying to rebuild while the English and French continued to isolate German expansion. The Russo-Japanese War is a fascinating conflict, and I just can't wait to dig into it. So thanks for sticking by, and we will see you next week.